The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, September 26th, the Strippers Behaving Badly edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast Outward. I'm Marcia Chatlin, a professor of history at Georgetown University. And I'm June Thomas, the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Hi, guys. Hello. So Nicole is out sick this week. We wish her a speedy recovery, abetted by the intellectual bombs we'll be offering up on this episode. Uh, We're going to start off today with Kamala Harris and her time at Howard University. There was a really good piece in the Post. Then we'll discuss Malcolm Gladwell's newly published book, specifically his take on alcohol, sexual assault, and Brock Turner. And last, but certainly not least, Hustlers. The late-breaking, I want to say it's a hit film of the summer, even though it's not technically summer anymore. (laughs) Uh, It's got J-Lo. It's got exotic dancers. It's a Robin Hood scheme against Wall Street creeps. We're going to talk about it all. I'm so excited for that one. Uh, And June, what's our Slate Plus segment this week? Christina, today on our Slate Plus segment, we will be asking if it is sexist for a man to walk around naked in a home that he shares with others. And those of you who are particularly sensitive might guess that this has a slight peg to, well, our favorite Supreme Court Justice, Brett Kavanaugh, (laughs) and news that is uh, continually creeping out about his past. You're going to want to hear that segment. If you're not a Slate Plus member yet, start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash thewavesplus. One order of business before we get started, Nicole and I, as well as several other Slate women, will be discussing the 2020 election at an event at the Bell House in Brooklyn this November, November 20th. It's at 7 p.m. Go to slate.com slash live for more details. We would love to see you there. All right. Our first topic today, Robin Givon published a piece in The Washington Post last week titled, Kamala Harris grew up in a mostly white world, then she went to a black university in a black city. Quite a long title. Uh, (laughs) And it was a really good piece. Uh, It's all about Harris's identity and ambitions and how they were shaped in part at Howard University in the 80s. Marsha, give us your thoughts. So this is an interesting piece to me because I don't think I was the intended reader. Hmm. There was a lot of instructing um, people who aren't familiar with historically black colleges or historically black sororities or the culture of these institutions that are so important to African-American history as well as present day leadership grooming. So it was like this walk into what it means for um, Harris to be a woman who is biracial, multi-ethnic, who had spent some time in Canada in high school, who grew up on the West Coast to come to college and really um, shape not only her ambitions in public service, but her identity. And so I think the article was interesting because she's a person who's really hard to capture in a single narrative that I think is usually done in politics. She isn't just the child of immigrants, and she isn't just this person who emerged in traditional settings to public service. And she, as we've talked about in the show, she is a stepmom, and she was married a little bit later in life, and her husband is white. So there's all of this stuff going on around her. And I think that the coverage of her is interesting because – Other than the time that she um, owned Biden, I guess, in the debate, in the conversation about busing, I don't know if there was a coherent narrative about who she was. And so I think that this piece is an attempt to do that. And I know that there are a number of profiles of her that are trying to tell a single story. But I think I don't think you can do that with anyone, but I don't think you can do that with her. And so I'm always really interested to see the different lenses that are put on who she is and where she came from. And it reminds me a little bit of the early days of Barack Obama, where people couldn't quite place him. And he had to write his own narrative. And a lot of it was about, um, he says, you know, I really grew up and became a man being a community organizer in Chicago. And his spouse played a large part in his self-fashioning as 
um, an African-American. And so in the absence of those elements of her own personal biography, it's interesting to see how her campaign as they move forward, how they try to tell the story of who she is. Yeah, that's a good point. And and trying to think about some of these other presidential candidates out there. I mean, no human being can be fully understood in a single narrative. Like no one's a walking stereotype. But a lot of the other candidates who you might try to write a biography about do seem to have a path that we more commonly think of as like a straight path to the presidency, like a Joe Biden or or like one of the Kennedys or something like that. Even Elizabeth Warren, like I think she does that brilliantly. You totally. know, I'm I'm Betsy from Oklahoma mm-hmm. who got a chance <laughs> to become a law school professor at Harvard, right? But she right. she curates that very carefully. Yeah. And with Kamala, I mean, a lot of people don't know what to think about her because we aren't used to hearing, you know, this um, collection of different, all different American narratives sort of in the same person. And so this piece was interesting to me because I really liked the narrow focus on this one time in her life. And, you know, I I know a little bit about Howard just because Mm -hmm. I'm an interested person. And also I've lived in D.C. for 13 years. But the way the piece talked about the specific cultural context of the 1980s and what was going on then and, you know, apartheid and the Reagan administration and how students there were activating about it taught me a lot. At the same time, I saw a little bit of contradiction in the piece in terms of the way it talked about Howard as a place that wasn't for revolutionaries, as Givon puts it, but as a place for people who wanted to sort of rise within systems of power. I mean, that certainly squares with Harris's trajectory and her uh, entire career as a prosecutor, which has become a little bit of a sticking point in her presidential campaign and part of this sort of complexity we're talking about. But I don't know. She, She talks about at the time, This was before the emergence of cancel culture. Success within the system was still a laudable act of subversiveness, whether as an investment banker, a corporate lawyer, or a district attorney. That's a narrative that benefits Harris, definitely. But uh, I'm willing to bet that there was like an equally passionate cohort at Howard in the 80s who would say, you know, even back then that becoming a prosecutor or an investment banker was selling out and that change within the system is not the way to make actual social change. I think there's a straw person being constructed here Mm -hmm. of kids today don't get it that making it look like this way. (laughs) And I, I think that part of the challenge of writing about Howard at the center of her life is that historically black colleges like Howard I think there's two reductionist views. One, that they were all about kind of assimilation, aspiring to a kind of level of white validation, and it's so conservative. And the college presidents broadly were not very supportive of students in the civil rights movement in the 60s. And so it's this place that is supposed to represent um, the more conservative elements of black life. But I think a lot of people today are starting to reevaluate how we define radicalism in that context. Mm -hmm. And I think the writer is not quite sure how to come out on this, but she's trying to suggest that this environment that from the outside could be critiqued as really conservative was actually doing something else. And I'm sympathetic to that, but I think that these types of constructions don't allow Howard to have the complexity that Harris has in the story. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I think that uh, Robin Given does kind of, you know, faint at that when she's talking about how um, Howard was a place for first-generation students, for the black elite, that it was for radicals, but it was also for quite conservative students. You know, like that it contained multitudes. And I would mention, too, that I lived in D.C. I write at this time. I recognize, like, I used to go to the South African embassy. I, you know, I, a very good friend of mine was a Howard student at the time. I, you know, it did take me back to being in D.C. in that 80s period, that mid-80s period, um, that I enjoyed being just kind of put in the time machine there. Um, but one thing that was really interesting was the way that she provides the information, but she doesn't kind of draw the conclusion that maybe some of us who are uh, maybe cynical draw, which was so... She talks about both at the beginning and the end of how important Howard is to Harris, not only as something that formed her, but also as something now that establishes her in the eyes of some people who might need reminding that she is a black American. Um, You know, hey, I went to Howard. I I went to a black college, you know, or it's a black college. I think that's the, you know, the the last words of the piece. Um, And so, but which obviously is 
very important is something that a lot has been crucially foundational to a lot of people. But there's an element now of where she's running for office. She's running for the highest office. And is she using this? Which Did she always plan this? Now, of course, I think it's impossible for anyone to believe that young Kamala was so clear on her vision for how she would end up and that 30 years, 30, 35 years later, however exactly many years it is, she would be running for president. So, hey, it would be good to have gone to a, a historically <laughs> oh bad God, college. Oh, my God, that's so cynical. <laughs> no, but then, but, but then also there is this element at the end. So it mentions that she is you know, an Alpha Kappa soror. Uh, again, we know that the the influence of, of of sororities and fraternities too at black at historically black colleges is very key. But she joined the sorority yeah. as a second semester senior. What is the purpose of joining a, a sorority well, or any organization as a, a line, lot longer? Exactly, exactly. Well, ex- and exactly. So it's not pure, like clearly, it's a very cynical view to say she was doing this for political gain. But she was doing it for networking. I don't think there's any other interpretation of why you would join any student organization in the, in the second, as a second semester senior except for the network, which is great. Robin Given talks about how the sorority, the, the Howard um, background is now something that she both draws on to kind of establish her bona fides, but also draws on as a really strong and important network. You know, that of course she should, just as you should always draw on every network that you have invested in. Um, but but it did also strike me as oh that's an interesting aspect of of Harris that I that I it just opened something up for me uh, and I really enjoyed the piece. Just to clarify, June, it's actually not that unusual for um, African Americans to join sororities and fraternities late um, oh. because you can't join as a freshman and so you can't um, you can't apply for membership until your sophomore year because you have to have a college GPA. And then what happens, and I think this happens probably at historically black colleges often, is that um, everyone doesn't get in. And so some mm-hmm. years they don't take new classes. And I think that's yeah. what they said in the story. Yeah, all Her junior of, year they didn't. Her junior year no one, no one was allowed to. But all of this is to say that I think the things that you were pointing to in terms of um, – the strategic nature and her thinking about how, you know, like about climbing the ranks, you know, in the context of the late 80s, this mm-hmm. is the type of choice that a lot of people made where I go to Howard and then I'm kind of plugged into everyone. And I think yep. you're absolutely right. If we think about politically who she was looking up to in that time in terms of running for office, they talk about Jesse Jackson's runs for office. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the only other people she probably had as a reference point maybe is Shirley Chisholm, who was you know past her time, but um, who was also in a sorority. So I think that there is a playbook that yeah. a lot of African American politicians of a certain generation think about, and it's kind of interesting. It's historically black college or the Ivy League. Um, yeah. You don't get as many people who. Um, do things like I'm going to stay at my state school yeah. so I can run mm-hmm. for office. I think right, right. a lot of my white friends from college thought in those ways. And so there's this really interesting way. But that network issue, I think, is so critical. And I actually wrote a piece for the Washington Post made by History Blog last year about the importance of sororities in terms of political mobilization. And mm-hmm. I think in same ways that um, – Spelman women are an incredible um, political block. Stacey Abrams went to Spelman mm-hmm. and, you know, you can see the excitement about it. I think that this article is helpful for people to understand the viability of black candidates if they don't understand and recognize it because of these networks. And I think it's kind of interesting, the hyper-segregated nature of how a lot of people live these institutions that are so critical aren't even visible or legible. Yeah. And so I right. think that this article was trying to walk people through this underlying question of like, who does Harris think she is that she could make a bid for the white house. And it's like, well, actually she's a really politically connected person who mm-hmm. has all of these networks to draw from that may not look like anything from a larger view, but if you think about states like South Carolina, where she spent a lot of time and a lot of sorority women turned out for her, you start to see the ways that these political um, campaigns can be built. I think it's also a really good and instructive piece in terms of just making the case for 
the value of being in a space like that. Like mm-hmm. uh, I was thinking of a recent story in D.C. about Howard students who were advocating against some of the white people who've moved into the neighborhood and now are walking their dogs through uh, the yard, which is like a, a really important gathering space on campus. And they're like, you know, this is supposed to be our space that's like unmediated by the white gaze and white expectations. And now all these people are having their dogs poop on on the yard. Um, and a piece like this that, as you said, Marsha, is sort of just like walking people through like, why would someone choose to go to a place like this? How does this actually empower people to become leaders and believe in their own capacity? Um, I thought that was really important. And it also made me think of the discourse around um, Pete Buttigieg and his gay identity, especially when the piece talked about, you know, some people are saying, oh, is Kamala black enough? Honestly, I think a lot of those criticisms are coming from conservatives and are being made in bad faith. Um, and many like, of them are from bots who also right, paid exactly. for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's, it's, it's sort of like a false narrative that's being advanced by these bots who are like, well, you know, her dad's from Jamaica. Does that even make her black? And a lot of people are responding, you know, saying things like, well, racists don't care where <laughs> if her father's from Jamaica and her mom's from India, you know, they care that she's black. But this exploration of the fact that she decided to go to a place like Howard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I feel like her decision to go there and also the impact it had on her are equally important when you're trying to think about how does this person's identity impact their life. And that's the same kind of conversation people are trying to have about Pete Buttigieg, where when you're talking about identity and representation in someone's politics, it's it's, it's not enough just to say, you know, well, this person has a, a, any given identity. It's, it's about, you know, how does that identity shape their worldview and how does their identity shape the way the world responds to them? And so I think this piece does a really good job exploring the complexities of, you know, all the different ways that someone can interact with their own identity. Yeah. All right. I think that's all the time we have for this. Listeners, read the piece. If you read it, we'd love to hear what you think. Email us at thewaves@slate.com. All right. Malcolm Gladwell has a new book out, Talking to Strangers. The gist of it is that the gears of human life are lubricated with trust, that if we didn't trust that strangers are being truthful to us, that companies are dealing honestly with us, we would never do anything. But Gladwell says we could stand to be a little more cautious in our interactions with other people. The chapter we're talking about today, chapter eight in the book, is about alcohol and sexual assault. Uh, It takes as its case study Brock Turner's sexual assault of Emily Doe at Stanford University. Turner famously got just six months in jail for the assault. Emily Doe's victim statement went viral on BuzzFeed. Actually, now we know that her name is Chanel Miller. She's got a new memoir out this week. Um, But the book refers to her as Emily Doe. Um, So the argument that he advances will not be uncommon or new to most of our listeners, I think. Um, He spends a while on studies about how it's really hard to tell if someone else is drunk, how being drunk can make you into a totally different person um, by taking away your ability to consider future factors and consequences. Um, He quotes a bit from former Slate writer Emily Yaffe, who has written a lot about alcohol and sexual assault and who's argued that young women and young men both should be taught to drink less. By the end of the chapter, Gladwell is arguing that sexual assault can be basically boiled down to a misunderstanding, a misreading of signals, often between two people too drunk to know what's really going on. Um, And he he pretty much encloses the case of Chanel Miller's assault in a black box and saying, we can never really know what happened. They were both blacked out. Um, Maybe Miller did want to hook up with Turner. She just can't remember feeling that way. Maybe Turner just misread her flirtations, you know, that no one can really, they can't really remember what's going on, so we can't really tell what went on. So the moral of the story for him is that alcohol just hopelessly confounds the possibility of adjudicating consent. You can probably tell what I thought of this. I was really mostly blown away that he spent the entire chapter giving credence to rapists who say that they truly believed that the women they assault wanted to have sex. And he took Brock Turner at his word that he believed, you know, Miller experienced sexual pleasure and desire lying behind this dumpster, partly or fully unconscious, like being penetrated in such a manner that debris from the ground was found in her vagina. The premise that he takes as the foundation for his argument was objectionable to me. But I'm curious to hear what you all thought about this chapter. What is going on with Malcolm Gladwell? (laughs) 
because this chapter, and I also think about another chapter in the book that looks at uh, Jerry Sandusky and Joe Paterno and the child sex abuse scandal at Penn State, and the framing chapter that looks at Sandra Bland. And I wonder what Malcolm Gladwell is thinking, because each of the chapters of this book are about certain theories about about people being familiar to each other, strangers to each other, ideas about truth. And the illustrative examples have nothing to do, I believe, with the theories that he's trying to advance about people's um, vulnerability to either believe people or um, inability to connect. And so why in the world these choices are made, I have no idea. Um, He's being skewered pretty hard on this. But I think that the way that he frames this issue of alcohol and sexual assault, devoid of any other kind of structural issue about power, about sexuality, about groupthink, about um, degradation, it all of those things disappear in order for him to animate these theories. And so in many ways, um, the chapters are reflective of a way of thinking that he thinks is all you need to solve or understand problems. It's not just bad social, pop social science. It's bad writing. I mean, yeah. I, I'm a little surprised that no editor or maybe an editor did put a sticky note and say, <laughs> hey, let's think through these ideas. And I think that what's happening with him, it's that perfect nexus of incredible power and privilege in publishing, because he does sell a lot of books. Yeah. It's a way of trying to reduce complex social and moral problems to a few studies. I read an article about this. So therefore, this is the issue. But I don't know why sexual abuse and sexual assault would be used as the examples. I feel like there are other things that could be used. Um, People getting conned, people getting scammed, um, pyramid schemes, something else. And so taken together, the fact that he thinks that these are good examples of these theories, I think, demonstrates a culture that doesn't take sexual assault and sexual abuse seriously, that it can be so casually used in this way. It definitely seemed to me that he felt like, well, this this is just a simple problem that should be solved by now and and almost doesn't take into consideration the idea that sometimes people – rape and they know they're raping, you know, or that or or like you said, it seemed like he was very studiously avoiding the question of the of, you know, uh, gender dynamics and power structures that encourage behavior or abet behavior or like refuse to punish behavior like this. June, what do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, it's funny. When we were talking about this topic, I was sort of discouraging it because I thought, oh, Malcolm Gladwell, you know, it's just something that uh, right, journalists especially are always a little bit, um, you know, look at his stuff askew. And, yeah, and, sorry, and I what, forced what, us to talk about it anyway. Yeah, <laughs> uh, where, and, but was regular readers love his stuff. And I read this and I was just honestly, like, just really disappointed. It's, it's not very cogent. It's not very clear. The writing is very banal. Like, there were even phrases like, you know, this is X on steroids. Like, the, the most basic blogger would, you know, have that cut out of there. It's, it's just so there, there's it just felt like there was nothing there except really misconstrued ideas. Um, I, I've always had some sympathy for Emily Yoffe's pieces. I do think it's quite separate from the question of, um, of sexual. So, but like, yeah, it probably would be a good idea if young people drank less, um, you know, things when you're drinking this much, I mean, it goes into, of all the things to go into incredible detail about, there's quite (laughs) a lot of detail about how much people drink. And it is, you know, in in these situations, and it really is much too much. I speak as somebody who enjoys a drink and has at times been way too drunk, but that's not good. But then what is it even to do with this? Like, I just could not follow a through line in this chapter you know, which has whole sections of, of like charts and, and just didn't hold together for me on any level whatsoever. Yeah, it's interesting to me, and, and perhaps this is true throughout his writing, um, but it almost seems like he starts with an argument and then finds studies to back up an argument he's already made for himself. And But, you know, I think part of the reason why he's so popular is because he brings studies into his writing 
Um, and so people feel like, oh, wow, like this, you're right, all these different bits of information that we have really do add up to something bigger. But he leaves out a lot of really helpful information. Like, um, you know, with a quick Google search, I found that you know, even though it behooves a sexual assailant to say, oh, I was drunk at the time, only 60 to 65 percent of admitted sexual assailants say they were drinking at the time of their assault. And yet Malcolm Gladwell says the issue is not about how men behave toward women when they're sober. It's how they behave toward women when they're drunk. Well, actually, there's also a problem with how men behave toward women when they're sober. And there's also a study I found, again, quick Google, that tracked more than 700 men through college, found that among men who reported committing fewer assaults over time and men who reported committing more sexual assaults over time, each group drank less as time went on because they drank a lot their freshman year and not as much their senior year, probably because they were sick of vomiting all the time. <laughs> but what was correlated with their change in sexual assault behavior was their attitudes towards women. And the people who reported assaulting or having more, you know, forced sexual encounters or whatever, coercive sexual encounters over time were found that their, you know, their uh, interactions with their peers in terms of feeling hostile toward women grew over time. Like these – it's a very confounding problem. Mm -hmm, Alcohol mm -hmm. and sexual assault are problems that are not easy to solve. Clearly, right. we have not solved them. Right. Um, but to boil it down to just, well, we can never know what goes on between two people who were so drunk, especially in a case like Brock Turner's where there were actually witnesses to him, you know, humping this unconscious woman, Chanel Miller, on the ground. Like, it's it, it really boggles my mind that he chose that. And I have to believe that maybe the reason why he chose that and the case of Sandra Bland was that he just wanted to feel like relevant and have people argue over it because I wouldn't mm -hmm. be talking about this if he had used, you know, a pyramid scheme as an example or something. The fact that, like you said, this case is actually unusual in that there were witnesses and that there was actually bystander intervention. Mm -hmm. So that alone really <laughs> puts this case in a very different place. Um, and that there was actual prosecution. Mm -hmm. So everything about this is an outlier to use Malcolm Gladwell's language. <laughs> and he uses it to enter into a conversation about alcohol that is not just kind of incongruent, but I think there's something about this type of um, allegedly detached writing that says, hey, folks, I'm just giving you the studies and the facts. I'm not being a misogynist or I'm not, you know, denying rape culture. I'm just giving you the stuff that you need that – is at best irresponsible and at worst um, is disingenuous because it is pretending not to fuel the monster that creates the conditions in which he's talking about. And so I think that there is a way that sometimes high profile writers, they don't want to do a full right turn, right? Like they don't want to become, um, you know, these ideologues or heroes of the right. But I think that we live in an era in which people are nodding to a series of really noxious ideas and then playing innocent, mm. that they're doing this um, They're doing this for our own good. I'm just a heterodox thinker. I'm just, yes, I'm just trying to help us rethink. And I, and I guess, fine, if you want to do it with this case. But again, I refer you back to the child sexual abuse case at Penn State, which again is unusual that involves a witness. Mm. It involves um, adults actually uh, corroborating the stories of children. It involves all of this cover-up, and it actually involved, to some degree, some accountability, which makes it an outlier again. But, you know, this is like, ugh. Did he, did he workshop any of these chapters? Does he have any yeah. friends? It makes me wonder what world he lives in in which there wasn't someone to help shape this in a different mm -hmm. direction. Yeah. It also strikes me that it seems like often the same people who are saying, you know, so many sexual assaults are just a big misunderstanding, people misreading each other's signals, also are often the ones that scoff at calls for affirmative consent as sort of the baseline. Mm -hmm. So, like, if if sex really is this sort of blurry zone where everyone's misreading each other and, and everyone has good faith intentions going in, then why not call for like a really firm, yes, let's have everyone say yes to sex before they have sex. 
Um, I mean, and I know you just said you have a lot of sympathy for Emily Yaffe, but I will say that this is one of the things that bugs me most about her arguments. And, you know, I, I would say Gladwell's argument, too, where he's like, starts the chapter off saying with these um, this poll where, like, no one could agree on what exactly um, sexual assault was or under what circumstances people have consented to sexual assault. And I'm like, there's kind of a solution to that, which is saying, like, let's have everyone say yes to sex before having sex. Like, it, not that it's a simple solution by any means and, like, how do you promote that sort of culture, blah, blah, blah. But, like, there actually is a way to clarify some of these, quote unquote, misunderstandings that seem to be happening, you know, that, that doesn't appear in his piece. Talking is a radical idea. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it really is. Talking is a radical idea. And I think that there's a way that um, some of the issues around alcohol, he doesn't address the fact that the social lubrication of alcohol, the anxieties that alcohol is supposed to reduce, the reasons why people drink before they feel like they have the confidence to approach a person for a sexual encounter. All of that stuff is actually tied into this drinking culture, but there's no place for that. There's a lot of place for the misread motivations of sexual assault, but not the kind of deep, both emotional and social reasons why people are so dependent Oof. on alcohol. Yeah, I know. Oh, man. <laughs> All right. I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, listeners, are you a Malcolm Gladwell fan? Have you read this book? Drop us a note at thewaves@slate.com. We'd love to hear what you think. Front hook. Ankle hook. Yep. Knee hook. Hold on with that knee. Okay. From here, you can do the carousel. Put your head back. Hustlers is a new film starring Constance Wu and Jennifer Lopez. It's based on a 2015 New York Magazine story. The crowds are loving it. It hit number two at the box office in its first weekend. June, tell us about it. So yeah, as you say, it stars Constance Wu and Jennifer Lopez. It is based on a nonfiction piece. It's based on a New York Magazine article by Jessica Pressler called The Hustlers at Scores. And as Rachel Hampton wrote in Slate, it's largely true. I mean, as almost always with feature films, there is a little bit of stuff that was invented, but it's mostly about the relationships in this movie, uh, which tells the story of these dancers, strippers, um, during her time uh, in the club that we mostly, where most of the action happens. Constance Wu's a new arrival. She's not doing too well. And then she sees... Ramona. Ramona walks in the room. She struts into the room. She takes the stage. She does a dance. Ramona is played by Jennifer Lopez, and it is revelatory. It's an amazing performance. It mm -hmm. is full-on charisma in all its glory. We, the viewers, are entranced. The men in the club are entranced. Constance Wu is entranced, and she succeeds, without actually much effort, in having Ramona become her mentor, her friend, her sort of teacher uh, in how to be a better dancer and how to kind of get more money um, because in, before she hooks up with Ramona, uh, she's kind of going through all of this stuff and just not even making bank. And then the 2008 financial crisis kind of causes a lot of disruption in, the, in this business. Constance Wu's character Destiny is by that time, I think, actually left the business because she gets pregnant. She tries to, um, I don't say go straight because this isn't presented as something that is illegal, which it certainly isn't. But, you know, you can see that people are trying to, you know, it's not necessarily where they want to work forever. Uh, there are degrading aspects of it for sure. Um, but at some point, she's, you know, she can't. She can't make it. She doesn't really have enough experience to get a regular job, having essentially worked in clubs long term. That's really her work experience. Um, and so after her failed attempt to kind of leave the club world, she reconnects with Ramona. But by now, the club's have really, there's no money in the clubs. Russian women have come in and they'll do blowjobs for $300. You just can't make money anymore. <laughs> so they turn to crime and they, instead of just kind of, you know, working the clubs, do, you know, using their womanly wiles, to use a terrible phrase, they actually just start to target men. Ramona and Destiny and then two of their friends, Constance Wu is Asian, Jennifer Lopez is Latina, with, along with uh, fellow dancers, one of whom is black, one of whom is a blonde white woman, they sort of tell men that they're sisters. You guys are sisters? Yes, same dad, different mom. Oh. To sisters. To sisters. To sisters. To sisters. They take them off uh, 
first to the club and then later when the scheme kind of starts to go wrong to hotel rooms and other places. And they drug them and get them to sign credit card slips for like thousands of dollars. And they really are kind of stealing from men at that point. <laughs> kind of. They definitely are stealing from men. <laughs> they're also drugging them. Totally yeah. scheming for, they're just drugging and stealing from men. Is that a crime? <laughs> well, so that gets to the most interesting question that I have for you guys and that I'm still grappling with myself is, I mean, they're doing something objectively wrong and kind of gross. And so I I found myself, you know, like I think much of the audience, and certainly this is what the film wants you to do, is just rooting for them all the way and feeling absolutely no, um, you know, qualms about what they're doing because these men are incredibly rich. They do like a, a pretty uh, bang-up job justifying it in the film where they're like, they're so rich. They did steal this money from people. Uh, in fact, I think we have a clip where Ramona yeah. is sort of explaining to Destiny why they should feel okay about doing what they're doing. We got to start thinking like these Wall Street guys. You see what they did to this country? They stole from everybody. Hardworking people lost everything. And not one of these douchebags went to jail. Not one. Is that fair? You ever think about when they come into the club? That's stolen money. That's what's paying for their blowjobs. The firefighters' retirement fund. So this is kind of a revenge fantasy on multiple levels, on the class level uh, and also on the gender level. Like, they're getting men drunk and high against, like, without their consent in order to take advantage of them. And when um, there was a point in the film where they're like, you know, this man is kind of almost dying because or they think he might be dead or passed out because they they might have drugged him a little too much. And they're sort of like slapping his face to wake him up. And I was going through my head like, oh, my God, what would happen if if he did die and the cops would come? And I was like, they would just say, oh, he, no, he wanted to take the drugs. This is what he was doing. Like, yeah, what he came to the strip club. Like what man doesn't want to come to the strip club with all these women? Like, which is kind of what people say after they sexually assault women, like to go back to our previous segment, it it felt like a very strong parallel between those two scenarios, which is why I, I feel like there wasn't a lot of moral complexity to the film, which is one of it sort of bugged me a little bit until, you know, the end. It, it came in a little bit with like, oh, here's a guy who couldn't pay his mortgage, who had a kid with autism. He was a single dad and da, da, da. And like then it's like, oh, yeah, they're doing something actually wrong. Did you guys feel that way? Yeah, I actually enjoyed the film. But I think the trope of women behaving badly as revenge fantasy is a common thing that does this weird thing in film and in television that it excuses abuse hmm. or it contextualizes abuse to the point where you no longer see it as abuse, right? It's played for laughs or it's played um, for excitement. And I think that is generally a problem in popular culture, right? When it's funny when a woman hits a man or murders her husband. With that being said, I think what I did like about this movie is that it was a love story between friends. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think the complexity didn't come in how the crime was committed. The complexity came through the relationships. And I think this is why the movie is getting such good reviews, because I think it was mm -hmm. it would be really interesting for a movie like this to default to this idea that women don't want to be bad and they really struggle with it. And they didn't for a large portion of the film. I think that the kind of populist class politics of the economic crash of 2008 was done really well. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, the love story between Ramona and Destiny, I found really beautiful because it helps you understand why a friendship that can be a little exploitative can also be really loving, can also be mm -hmm. a little abusive and coercive 
and also really dependent in a way that didn't render either of the characters intolerable. Mm -hmm. But they were just Mm -hmm. people who were in this dynamic because of their vulnerability, and they refused to succumb to it. There's a way that this movie is flashy with the fashion and the sexiness Mm -hmm. of the dancing, but it didn't feel excessive. The characters didn't overact their positions, and I think they used Lizzo and Cardi B sparingly in the best possible (laughs) way. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. they allowed these actresses to really kind of act through um, the film and so I think this is the best Jennifer Lopez movie since like Selena mm-hmm. you know yeah. she's usually not that strong in film to me and I think she did a really good job again modulating the tone of the character so no one was a caricature but everyone was mm-hmm. doing these outrageous things It, I think it is very interesting the, the very different responses people can have to this where I know people were sort of dunking on Richard Brody's review in The New Yorker because he was saying the film felt incomplete without a little more perspective from or consideration of the men who were paying these women, oh, you know, sometimes God. willingly, sometimes not. But I kind of thought he had a point. Interesting. Like, it, because it's, you know, it's it was very interesting to me to think about the fact that these men were getting off in part on giving away their money. And yeah. and for a lot of them, I don't think it even was about sex. It's about, yeah. you know, not just power, but also the fact that they have this money and love to spend it and, and love to see women being grateful for it. And that's yeah. part of how they manage this heist. Um, yeah. I don't necessarily think I would have wasted more of the film on the men, but I don't think that that was a um, – that that was a like out of line critique, and it, and it kind of goes back to the the sort of lack of moral complexity that I felt when yeah. I watched it. Where, um, you know, I think I I did feel s- like stuff bubbling up toward the end, and I kind of wished I had been able to feel that the entire time, and and questioning yeah. my own impulse to root for them. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because my first response when you mentioned, you know, we wanted more perspective as men was, oh, come on, because I loved like that this was about the women. There really Mm -hmm. are, you know, yes, there are some men who we see, you know, across the movie, but it's about the women. The the men are minor characters. Um, At the same time, what you said is persuasive. Like, yes, it was clearly about the power of just being able to waste your money to get women to do things they really didn't want to do um, just by throwing down a note, you know? And they're just sort of more caricatures, whereas the women were extremely complex. Yeah, yeah. I also loved the way that Destiny's desire to be completely independent financially was playing against her desperate need for companionship and Mm -hmm. and female leadership and also like loving touch from her Mm -hmm. friends i saw the movie with somebody who was like i didn't get their relationship like what was it sexual because they are like extremely physical Mm -hmm. the first time they Mm -hmm. sort of meet um j-lo is like come get in my fur and just sort of climb into my fur yeah climb into my fur (laughs) and sort of wraps up destiny i'm using their characters' names and their actors' names uh, interchangeably. But, like, I kind of loved that. And I loved that Mm -hmm. it showed the jealousy that Destiny experienced when somebody new comes into the picture, Mm -hmm. both because um, the new person is becoming the beneficiary of some of Ramona's, like, uh, financial and personal largesse, but then mm-hmm. also because there's this stratification of like respectability and criminality between people who see themselves as um, like businesswomen and dancers and people who mm-hmm. are like doing drugs and, and probably sex workers. And the bold line that Destiny drew between who she was and who this newcomer was was also like really interesting to me. We've all talked about the female relationships, the friendships, especially the one between Ramona and Destiny, that is Jennifer Lopez and Constance Wu. And it it is really, it is the through line of the movie. It is the thing that I connected to at the same time it was I didn't quite believe it like as you say the moment that Ramona sees Destiny for the first time not knowing anything about her she invites her to climb inside her fur she you know is petting her effectively and why you know I don't we like we don't do that we women you know we don't necessarily just immediately connect why why would Ramona give Destiny the benefit of her lessons, you know, to teach her how to Maybe be. Maybe not we women, but I think that the 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 New York Magazine piece, too, sort of explained this woman 
you know, the the basis, the women who formed the basis for Ramona ads, like having a little mm-hmm. bit of a soft spot, so to speak, for women mm-hmm. who are struggling, new women at the club, da, da, da. Yeah. I, I mean, it's not that I can't believe it as a as a concept. I just wasn't quite sold to me mm-hmm. as in this movie as why there was this immediate connection. I understood exactly why Destiny would, you know, have stars in her eyes seeing Ramona because Ramona when she's introduced, it's, you know, it's like a bullfighter. It's like she's so, she's got so much charisma. She's got so much power. She controls, you know, this, which is a slightly overworked theme of the movie. She controls everyone. Um, but why would, I just, it just didn't, wasn't sold to me why Ramona would connect with Destiny. Um, and also we should mention that there's a kind of an unreliable narrator yeah. slight thing going on because the piece that it's based on is kind of, present in the movie because at times, uh, especially Destiny is talking to a reporter played by Julia Stiles, and we really only get that version of events. Um, And Destiny is always trying to say, what did Ramona tell you? Because they have, their, their friendship has broken apart. And you know, Destiny is still longing for connection with Ramona, but she doesn't have it. And she just kind of wants, she she wants to know what Ramona's version of this was, because, of course, she wants to know how important Destiny was to her. So, like, if that's that's a present thing, but I'm not sure it really, it doesn't quite work, but mm. it's interesting. I think it is believable because the character Ramona is is rendered powerful because she gets people like the way that she can Mm -hmm. manipulate men. One of the things that that was really interesting is the movie really goes into the ecosystem of the strip club audience and Mm -hmm. knowing how to assess like a man with money and no money and the wall street guys and where they are in the ladder. I thought that was actually really well done, but I think that there is an indication that because she's been in this business so long, she gets, she can perceive things about people very quickly. And I think Mm. she also feeds on the vulnerability of others. And so Mm -hmm. I think her being nice to a new girl is really in step with how she is able to maintain her power Mm. in that Mm. environment. I think the part of the film that impressed me was the fact that they were able to really recreate the 2000s <laughs> yeah. in this way that was was actually really well done. And there's a scene mm-hmm. where they're in Ramona's apartment and the Kardashians come on. And yeah. I think that that was supposed to be kind of a, a nod, not just to the, the period of time, but this different ways in which sexualization is for sale and the way that reality TV validates it through a lens of celebrity and these women who are working at this club, they don't have access to it, but it's still about kind of money and sex and power together. I don't think it's a coincidence that the Kardashians come on, you know, in the background in order to set the scene. Yeah. Yeah. It also made me think of the business of exotic dancing as a job that requires like several different kinds of skills. I think it showed that really well, the way Ramona is not only teaching Destiny specific moves that she can do on the pole, but also has to teach her how to assess the clientele, how to, you know, draw down the clock instead of work the clock, not the cock. (laughs) Yeah, like it's it was a really good workplace comedy or dramedy for me. Um, And and it like it also illustrated the financial and personal precariousness of some of these workplace environments such that, you know, you can have designer clothes and maybe an enormous apartment and like a fur, but then the second there's a recession and your exotic dances are like the first luxury good to to be taken off the budget, um, you know, then you only have a GED and no other work experience and, and where are you supposed to go? And it made the point that that strip clubs are not the only place that happens. I mean, even when Ramona goes to work at Old Navy, she is subjected to the same sort of like gendered discrimination or like being pulled in two different places as she was at the strip club. Totally. Listeners, we'd love to know how you feel about women behaving badly, revenge fantasies. Do you love them? Do you hate them? Do you feel complicated about them? Email us at thewaves at slate.com. Recommendation time. June, what have you brought? So I would like to recommend a novel uh, by Sarah Shulman, um, who I've been reading for decades. And 
She is back with an, a novel that's actually kind of reminded me of her very early works. It's called Maggie Terry. It's about a lesbian detective, um, which is, is kind of back to her kind of the first novel that she wrote, Girls, Visions and Everything, was, was a very similar kind of book. And she wrote other similar types of books in, in the beginning of her career. But it's also, of course, because she is uh, a very smart writer who um, – loves to provoke. It also is about New York in the age of Trump. Uh, the main character, Maggie Terry, is a cop who has, um, it's not really clear why she's no longer in the force, although the fact that she's an alcoholic and a drug addict is probably relevant. Um, but she's newly sober and she's trying to stay sober. And what she's going through as a newly sober person, seeing things afresh, you know, after just a very long time of just being intoxicated in one way or another, and it's also about America in the Trump era and kind of recognizing just the extreme strangeness that we're surrounded by. And it's also just a really like a very fun read. She's a great writer. So Maggie Terry by Sarah Shulman. That sounds so good. I love Sarah Shulman. Got to check that out. Marsha, what do you have? I am recommending a memoir this week. Um, Sister Helen Prejean, who people know from the Dead Man Walking movie and book, has a new book called River of Fire, My Spiritual Journey that looks at her upbringing in Louisiana, things that she learned unconsciously about race, her experience as a novice, as a young nun, and then the turning point that really helped inspire her decision to serve the poor in New Orleans and to really think critically about the death penalty. I love this book because apart from the fact that it's about this thing that very few people do, which is become a nun, it is inspirational for the things that people really can do and thinking about race and justice and where we really spend our time trying to change the world. So if you enjoyed Den Man Walking, you will enjoy River of Fire. Oh, another good one. I'm recommending a television series. I think everyone should watch this season of Succession. It's season two of the HBO series. If you haven't seen it, it's about a billionaire family that owns a media and hospitality conglomerate. Um, it's, you know, a, a politically conservative news media situation. The family is, I think, loosely based on Rupert Murdoch's. Um, the three children of this terrifying and terrorizing old patriarch are jostling to take over the business. It is wickedly funny, morally bankrupt. The characters are very easy to love, even easier to hate. The performances are spectacular. I can't think of anyone on the show that doesn't deserve an Emmy. Um, and this season in particular has some really good stories about female leadership and negotiating um, and a particularly good piece about the the one daughter in the family who finds her time to shine when the family's cruise line gets embroiled in a sexual harassment scandal. There's just a lot of good, like, weird sexual undertones to the series, too. And it's got a lot of good wardrobe and home decor <laughs> porn. Um, and it just a good skewering of the 0.1%. I love it. You should watch it. It's on HBO. If you like Succession, and I don't know why anybody wouldn't because it is amazing and also, it must be said, hilarious, there is a Slate recap series, which funnily enough is under the Slate Money umbrella. <laughs> so it's in the Slate Money feed, uh, but Slate Money Succession, and um, it's led by Felix Salmon and Emily Peck of Slate Money, but then they have a rotating cast of guests. I've been a guest. And the most recent episode, the guests were um, Lydia Paul Green of HuffPost and her wife, Candice Fight. And uh, they were on because Candace had tweeted that Succession is the queerest show on TV without ever having had a queer storyline. And I think that was exactly <laughs> accurate and so interesting. And that made for a great episode of the podcast as they have all been amazing. I never thought uh, of that, so but I, maybe that's why I like it. Um, it's yeah, also one of the only shows queer. that my parents and I both like. So oh, a diverse oh range of wow. sensibilities can be satisfied <laughs> by this show. All right, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much to Sarah Burningham, who produced this episode, and Cleo Levin and Rosemary Belson, who provided production assistance. For Marsha Chatlin and June Thomas, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks for listening. Thanks.